Good morning, friends. I invite you to grab your copy of the Word of God and open it up to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 7, we'll continue in our series here in 1 Samuel. And for the last few weeks, if you are new to us, we have been going through the book of 1 Samuel to speak about the reality of a nation without a king. Speak to a nation that was desirous of being led, yet resistant to leaders. A nation that had leaders that should not be leaders, that resulted in destruction which leads us to our time today. In 1 Samuel chapter 7, we find ourselves at the turning point for Israel. We find ourselves at a point in Israel's history where things will no longer be the same for them, primarily and in, vocally in because of the work of the mercy of God on their behalf. And so today's theme is going to be primarily centered on the impact of God's mercy in the life of his children. So keep that in mind as we go through today's topic, or today's passage, and we talk about the impact of God's mercy upon his children. If you were here last week, you remember that last week we saw Israel as a nation who experienced great defeat at the hands of the Philistines, where 34,000 Israelites died in one battle. And this occurred primarily because they were seeking God to defend them, but only using God as a trinket, only using God as a means to an end to get what they wanted. Their heart was not in pursuit of Almighty God. Their heart was not in obedience to God's authority, to God's leadership. They were simply using God for what they could get from God. Perhaps some of us in our hearts know that that is the case in us. That we really only use God for that which we can get from God. We do not worship God as our King and as our Savior, as the one who created us and sustains us and holds us. We simply use Him. Friends, that's not how things should be, to say it lightly. Which makes God's mercy all the more remarkable. As we turn here in 1 Samuel chapter 7, we see how God draws Israel into his mercy so that he can deliver them through his mercy. And that's the story of our salvation, friends, that God draws us into his mercy so that he can deliver us through his mercy. Turn there in 1 Samuel chapter 7. We're going to read the whole book together, or the whole book, the whole chapter, or the whole book. We'll see where we stop. 1 Samuel chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. And from that day the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim. A long time had passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the asterisks from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mitzvah. 
Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mitzpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel. And the Lord answered him. And as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were routed before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from its blood, pursued the Philistines, and struck them as far as beth -car. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mitzvah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer, for he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the day of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. And there was also peace between Israel and the Amorites. And so Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he went on a circuit year by year in Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there. And there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. Let's pray for a second. Father, I thank you so much for this time centered on your word. And so I pray, Lord, that as we open your word and look through this passage, that our hearts and our affections would be centered upon you. We thank you for the gift of the word of God, which directs us, which corrects us, which causes our affections to be enlivened for the right things. And so I pray that as we study and think through these truths, as we read in 1 Samuel, that we would not leave this room unchanged by the mercies of your God, the mercies of you, our God. And so, Father, thank you for this text. May we do well as we study and think on and apply these truths in your name. Amen. So this passage is centered on the mercy of God given to an undeserving people. And this chapter, as I said previous, is a transitional point for Israel. Up to this point, they were seeking a leader, they were seeking a point on their own, and they were experiencing tremendous defeat and discouragement. And in chapter 7, we reach a crescendo of sorts where Israel turns to the mercy of God, calls out to God, and God's glorious mercy is given. And peace is restored to Israel. Now God's mercy is a thunderous thing. It's a thunderous occasion. The mercy of God is never a silent moment. As God acts on behalf of his children, it always results in tremendous change, tremendous impact in those who have experienced his mercy. And so I want to spend today talking about the impact of God's mercy. God's mercy is active to us as he draws us to him, as he draws us to his mercy, in order that we might be delivered through his mercy. So how is his mercy active? Well, let's start on the first point there, that God draws us to his mercy. If you look in your text here, in 1 Samuel chapter 7, verses 2 through 4, we see exactly how God draws us to his mercy 
The mercy of God is evident here as, Sam, as Samuel speaks to Israel, and frankly, as Israel experiences the return of their heart to God, we see God drawing them to himself, and there are marks of genuine repentance that we see in these first couple of verses. Those genuine marks of true repentance before Almighty God are, number one, the lamenting of our sins. Secondly, the putting away of foreign gods. Thirdly, the giving of our hearts to God. And so we'll talk about those three points, starting with the lamenting of our sin. How is God's mercy active in the lamenting of our sins? If you look at verse 2, we get a little bit of a history of what's occurring now. The ark has been returned to Israel. And as the ark was returned to Israel, Israel basically got to a point here at the end of chapter 6 and moving into chapter 7 where they didn't know what to do with the ark. There was concern about the power of the ark. In fact, they treated the ark unbiblically uh, as they disobeyed God's commandments with regards to care for the ark. Thirty uh, Israelites died. Seventy, seventy Israelites died, rather. And so Israel said, well, what do we do with this ark? Let's figure out where to put it. And so they came to Abinadab and said, well, we're going to leave this with you. Specifically, your son Eleazar will have watch over the ark. And as Eleazar watched over the ark, we read here that there was a time that had passed, approximately 20 years. And after 20 years, something occurred in Israel. The ark was essentially in storage. They were under the enslavement of the Philistine army still. And the worship of God was quiet until one day, one day, we don't know what occurred, but we know the result of it. The Israelites lamented after the Lord. The mercy of God draws us into a point in our own sin, just as Israel did, where he creates an element of discomfort within us with regards to our state. And so for Israel at this point in time, in the midst of their sin, they recognized that they had wandered, they had run, they had created distance between them and God, and there was a lamenting, a mourning before God that occurred. How merciful is our God that he does not allow us to be content in our sin. That he draws us out of our sin. That he creates discomfort in his children as we sin so that we do not run from him. I wonder if today is your day of lamenting your sin. Perhaps today you woke up and you felt a bit off in your heart as you wondered where you stood in relationship to the God of all creation. You looked at your life and there was a sense of discomfort as you recognized that the pursuits of your life did not match God's call upon you. Perhaps today is the day after 20 years where you begin lamenting after God. <clears throat> the issue for many of us is that we simply lament the effects of our sin, not the offense of our sin. And what I mean by that is that we experience consequences for behaviors that are not appropriate. We do things that result in negative consequences, and so that creates a sense of discomfort. That's where a lot of us stop. Oh, I just don't like the effects of what's happening within me. That's not true repentance. True repentance is coming before the Lord, recognizing that your sin is an offense before God. There's indeed a tremendous difference between lamenting the effects of sin in your life and lamenting the offense of your sin before God. You 
You see, it's entirely possible for those of us in this room, for all of humanity, to hear the mercies of God and yet harden our heart to the mercies of God. You hear the mercies of God as you feel the conviction of your sin and you harden your heart to the mercies of God as you refuse to repent of your sin. This is what the author of Hebrews is speaking to in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 15, when he says to those that he's writing to today, when you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. There's a distinct moment when you hear the voice of God calling us into surrender, calling us into confession, and we have to make a decision at that point. Do we indeed surrender? I think of one of the church fathers, the early church fathers, Augustine, who as a young teenage, early 20s young man, was experiencing the conviction of God with regards to his life, feeling a calling to give his life to God. And he, like many young men, struggled with the lust of the flesh. And so he prayed to God as he was dealing with his conviction. He said, oh Lord, oh God, make me pure, make me chaste, but not yet. And that's what a lot of us pray with God. Oh Lord, I'm so repentant of my sin and I want to change, but you know what? I'm not really quite there yet. Friends, listen, the mercy of God is drawing you today, giving you discomfort in your sin so that you do not remain in it any longer, so that you turn from your sin and begin to follow God. Maybe today, by the mercies of God, you are lamenting of your sin before God. So God's mercy is evident in the lamenting of our sin. God's mercy, secondarily, as we look at 1 Samuel 7, we see that God is calling Israel now to put away the gods that they are following. See, true, true repentance becomes truly repentant as you let go of those things that you were following previously. And this is what God is calling Israel to. This is where Israel gets a real treatment from Samuel, where Samuel draws a line in the sand and says, I see that you are lamenting. We've been through this before with you. If you are truly repentant, then things must indeed change. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 3. And so Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord, then put away your foreign gods. The if-then statement of repentance. Understand that true repentance is always turning away from something and turning to the Lord. Turning away from those gods that you once followed and turning to the Lord. And so that's what is happening in this passage. That's the genuine mark of true repentance is putting away those lesser things. What were the lesser things that Israel was looking to? Well, they were looking to the gods of the Canaanites, the gods of fertility, the Ashtaroth and the Baals, the gods who were promising, promising them fertility, promising them more. In essence, Israel was looking to these gods to give them more. More children, more crops, more wealth, more health, more sustenance, more meaning to their lives. When they needed more children, they went to these gods. When they needed better crops, they went to these gods. When they wondered what was next in their life, they went to these gods. And in doing so, they broke the foundational commandment that God had given them in Exodus chapter 20, that thou shalt have no other gods before me. And so I say to us this morning at Old North Church, if you want to follow God, if you desire to turn to God, then you must stop looking elsewhere for more. 
You must stop looking elsewhere for your meaning, for your purpose, for your sustenance. You and I must hear the words of Jesus Christ, our Savior, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, where he looked at those who were following him, and he said, It is impossible for you to serve two masters. You cannot follow me and the things of this world. You cannot trust in me with your mouth, but trust in other things with your lives. They simply cannot go together. So how is it that we are to respond to the mercy of God? With the same response that Samuel challenges Israel to. As Samuel looks at Israel here in verse 3, he says, Put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among you and direct your heart to God. As you repent and turn from and turn to, there's a decision that must be made where you give God your heart, your affections, the seat of your being, the center of your being, the place where your priorities are formed, your purpose is clarified, and your steps decided. I wonder if that describes your pursuit of God. Is God the center of your being? Is God the seat of your affections? Is God the place where your priorities are formed? Is God where your steps are decided? When Samuel told Israel to give God their heart, the ears of Israel would have naturally and immediately gone to a previous commandment they received, a previous teaching they received from Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Moses gave them the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6 of what it truly meant to follow God. And he said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And the mercy of God is remarkable in this way, friends, that as we give our heart to God, as we surrender our heart to God, we realize that what we gave him wasn't a heart at all. <laughs> it was a shadow of a heart. It wasn't alive. It wasn't, it wasn't feeling. And God in his graciousness reaches and responds to the, our surrender and gives us a new heart. Some of you know what that's like. Where the heart that was once cold to the things of God now becomes alive. And Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26, as God talks to his people and lovingly says to them, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, a heart that feels, a heart that is sensitive. Some of you in this room are so desirous of that. And it begins with you saying, God, here is my heart God's mercy is evident within us that as he gives you this new heart, you begin to feel again. Realizing that everything you had previously was merely a shadow, an imitation of true life. And this is a message that Israel has heard from the leaders that God has given them time and time before. And we hear that time and time again, that we need God to give us a new heart. And it requires that we give him our heart, that we give him our being. In Joshua chapter 24, Joshua looks at the nation of Israel and says, you've got to make a decision. Are you going to serve God or are you going to serve the little g-gods? Are you going to follow God or are you going to follow the gods of this world? Make that decision this day. And then Joshua, as their leader, says, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And so Israel faces a decision that day. As they hear from their previous leaders, Joshua, Moses, and so on, and then they hear from Samuel right now saying, choose who you're going to serve. Give him your heart. Is today the day that you indeed give him your being? Make that decision. Israel faces that moment, and we face that moment 
right now. In 2019, on this Palm Sunday, the mercy of God is always active, always active in the hearts of His children, always drawing us away from sin and towards His righteousness. How do we respond to Him? For as we respond to His merciful drawing to Himself, He has promised that as we experience and go to His mercy, that He will deliver us through His mercy. Let's look at what happens next here in this story. As God delivers Israel through His mercy. And so in verse 5, we begin here with Samuel saying, Gather all Israel of Mizpah, and I will pray for the Lord for you. I will pray to the Lord for you. And they gathered. And as they were gathered and they fasted and poured out water, the Philistines came upon them again. But things were different this time. Because of the mercy of God, God delivered Israel. But the question I've always asked with, with Israel is why does God keep delivering Israel? We've been through this countless times before with Israel. They've said before they repented. They said that they were tired of the other gods. They said they would follow gods only to go back to the little gods once more. Yet God, in some unimaginable way and for some unimaginable reason, has continually poured his mercy over Israel. And what makes this section so different from previous ones? How is it that God's mercy delivers Israel? We've got three points we'll talk through on this. It's because of the mercy of his provided intercessor, and the mercy of the proper sacrifice, and the mercy of God's ultimate defense. Let's talk about this first point here. God's mercy given to us through a provided intercessor. In chapter 5, I'm sorry, chapter 7, verse 5, we see that Samuel steps up. Samuel willingly and actively takes the confession of Israel before the holy God. He is their intercessor. He is what Israel was lacking previously. Eli was not that. Eli's sons most certainly were not that. And without an intercessor before the holy God, all that Israel was left with was a guilty confession before God. The guilt of their sin was still upon them. What mercy is it from God that he has given his children, Israel, an intercessor that he might indeed hear them? And just as Israel was interceded for by Samuel, by God's approved intercessor, one who could go before him, we today are interceded for by Jesus Christ. You cannot go before God. Some of you in this room have said, I just feel like God is so far away from me. Well, without Jesus Christ, it's exactly the case because you are only subject to the wrath of God apart from the intercessor on your behalf. Yet, if you are a child of God, this verse in Romans chapter 8 is one of the verses that you should have memorized. And if you need to memorize it, need a new technique to memorize this verse, write it on your neighbor's forehead so you can see it as you look at him. But in Romans chapter 8, verse 34, this should be a defining verse for us. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, and who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And then the author of Hebrews talks about this as well when he says, Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. 
And consequently, because he continues forever, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he is always living to make intercession for them. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. How unbelievable is this, that Jesus Christ our Savior, as he ascended into heaven, sat at the right hand of the Father, and intercedes on our behalf before God. There is nothing so freeing, so empowering, so joyful as knowing that we, as you sit in this pew this Sunday morning, are the subject of Christ's intercessory prayers. Think of that, my friends. As we sit in this pew and hear this teaching, we have one who on our behalf is before Almighty God, pleading our case through his ultimate sacrifice. Never let that truth grow cold in your heart. So Israel's hope in 1 Samuel is the hope of an intercessor who intercedes on their behalf. And our hope is that we too have a merciful intercessor who pleads for us on our behalf before the holy God. God gives Israel a proper intercessor. Secondly, not only does God give Israel a proper intercessor, he gives Israel and his mercy is poured out in, in, in effective ways for Israel through a proper sacrifice. As you look at verse 9 here of chapter 7, we see what Samuel does next for the nation of Israel. It says that Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering for the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. So Samuel, in verse 9, obeys the way of God in sacrificing the young, pure lamb. And that's in contrast, by the way, to the way in which Eli and Eli's sons had used the sacrificial moments before. As we've learned over the previous chapters, when Eli's sons oversaw the sacrifices, they would indeed take from the sacrifices for themselves. They were using the sacrifices to God for their own personal benefit. Yet here we see a faithful intercessor giving the proper, perfect, flawless sacrifice before the holy God in accordance with God's teaching. And as the blood poured out over the sacrifice in accordance with God's teaching, the blood poured over the sins of Israel, and their sins were no more. And we're told in the scriptures that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. You see, Israel could not offer that sacrifice on their own because they were a sinful nation steeped in their sin. But the intercessor could. And that's how it is with us, friends. We cannot offer a sacrifice before God that is acceptable. But with an intercessor, we can offer a sacrifice to God because his blood has indeed cleansed us. The blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ, God's man set apart by God to be his vessel of mercy for all of us, has covered us in the past, is covering us now, and will cover us in the future from all of our sins. He is that faithful, and his sacrifice is that effectual. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, Paul tells us, as he encourages the church at Ephesus with regards to what it means to follow God and experience true deliverance and true intimacy with God, he tells them in Ephesians 1, 7, In him, being Jesus Christ, we have the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins, according to the riches of his grace. How rich is God's grace? Because that's how much he's forgiven you. 
And you know what that means for us, friends? It means that you no longer are defined by your sin, but you're defined by his sacrifice. And as you are defined by his sacrifice, you have been set free from the shame that once defined you. And you are now given intimacy with the living God because of our intercessor, Jesus Christ. In 1 John 1, 7, we are told that if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from how much of our sin? All of our sin. That should be a point of emphasis in your heart right now. There is no dark corner of your heart where the blood of Jesus cannot cover. And if you think there is, that is a lie from the devil. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 through 19, Peter says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, the blood like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, Jesus Christ is our sacrifice. He's our intercessor, and he is the proper sacrifice by which you gain entrance before the holy God, by which God hears you, by which his mercy delivers you, by which he looks at you and calls you his own. It is through the intercessor, and it is through the work of the intercessor that God looks upon you. And as a result of those things... Because we have Christ as our intercessor, because we have Christ as our sacrifice, because Israel had Samuel as their intercessor, because Samuel sacrificed properly, and because Israel was truly repentant in those moments, God delivered them. And God will deliver us. Look at 1 Samuel 7, verse 10. And as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. Imagine being Israel at this point in time. What are you thinking? Here we go again. This is going to be the same as last time. Israel is a stronger, powerful army. They've kept us under wraps for all these years. They're going to destroy us again. But something was different now because of the mercy of God as he delivered them. In verse 10 it says, But the Lord thundered. One of my favorite words in this passage. God's mercy is never a quiet experience. It is always a thunderous occasion for the children of God where everyone notices what occurs. God thundered again with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were routed before Israel. At this point, Israel is no longer using God as a means to an end, but they are serving God as his children. They are calling him their God. They are pleading to their intercessor to continue to offer proper sacrifices, realizing that that has to occur. When Israel's eyes were only upon themselves, there was only desperation. But friends, I want to tell you something today. That when your eyes are on God's power and God's provision, there is no desperation. There's only deliverance. There's only deliverance. And we see here that God delivers his children. But don't just read it at a surface level. Let's pause for a moment. What did God deliver his children from? Well, your first answer is what the text says, from the Philistine nation. But really, what were the Philistines to Israel? The Philistines were instruments of God's judgment upon them. And so as God delivered Israel, 
from the Philistines, he was not merely delivering them from a nation. It was much, much bigger than that. He was delivering them from the wrath of the holy God. And just so that we don't miss the creative way in which God delivered Israel, and the way in which God pronounced his reign and his supremacy, we see that God thundered in this victory, and everyone would know what that meant. For as God pronounced his thunder that muted all other thunders, he pronounced his victory over the Philistines who served the God of Baal, who was called the God of Thunder. And so the thunderous almighty God of Israel, the Yahweh God, pronounced his supreme thunder over the attack of the Philistines for certain, but he pronounced his ultimate thunder over the judgment of God upon Israel. He said, you're no longer subjects of my wrath because of the sacrifice and the intercessor before you. He delivered Israel. And friends, that's what God's deliverance ultimately is. It doesn't always mean that the nation in front of you will be delivered, but God's deliverance for you as his child always means that his work is secure on your behalf. It means that you have been delivered and your state is secure before him. And therefore, what happens upon this earth, your heart, your mind is stayed upon the secured work of God. Because life on this earth on this earth will constantly be full of Philistines attacking you and that sometimes those Philistines win and other times God grants deliverance but he will always secure your heart this is why Paul can write what he wrote in Romans chapter 8 as Paul who was no stranger to persecution upon this earth wrote this amazing reality to what it means to follow God. He says, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth. He's kind of covering all the bases there, isn't he? Nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. God will deliver your heart as he holds your heart in the midst of all of life. And I want us now to look as we conclude at 1 Samuel 7, verse 12. For as God delivers us through his thunderous mercy, his thunderous mercy becomes a marker for all of life's moments that you will look upon. Look at 1 Samuel 7, verse 12. And Samuel then, upon the victory, took a stone and set it up between Mitzvah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, until now the Lord has helped us. Is, Samuel sets up a stone so that Israel would look upon it. Until now the Lord has helped us. What does that mean? Does that mean the Lord is done helping us at this point? No. He says, I want you through this memorial to understand all that God has done for you. Every time you look at this stone, you will remember God's faithful hand in bringing you to a point of victory at this moment. You will remember because of God's victory that he will deliver you in the future. So look at the Ebenezer. The name Ebenezer is an interesting name. Most of you in this room are thinking about Charles Dickens and the Christmas Carol. But Ebenezer was a name that was poignant for Israel. For Ebenezer was the name of the place, the location, where Israel was destroyed by the Philistines just three chapters previous. The Philistine army overwhelmed Israel at Ebenezer. 
And so Samuel here says, we will name the place of God's victory Ebenezer. You know why? Because what God does with our defeat is he turns them into his victory. That which was seemingly terminal in the lives of Israel being defeated by the Philistines, God turned into victory and said, Samuel, name Ebenezer because I give new meaning to old names. God's mercy renames moments of defeat into victory and deliverance for his children. No more stunning than at the cross of Jesus Christ. That which was a mark of death, a mark of shame, God turned into a mark of ultimate victory. And just as Israel had the stone of Ebenezer that they looked upon and celebrated the victory of God, so too we have a stone that we look upon and celebrate the victory of God. That which was once death and which ruled us is no longer final, as the stone has indeed been rolled away. And so for centuries, as Christians looked to the grave, they saw only an empty grave with a stone rolled to the side and pronounced, Ah, there is hope and deliverance through the work of Jesus Christ. Let us celebrate this merciful God who draws us to his mercy. And my prayer for us today as a congregation is that there might be some in this room who feel defeated by your sin. Some who are at a point by thinking their sin is just terminal and defining them. Let me just speak the mercy of God upon you. That God is drawing you out of that this day. And that there is no sin that overwhelms his sacrifice. There are also probably some of you in this room who have been a child of God for quite some time, but you are floundering, you are tired, you are defeated, and you have forgotten to look at the Ebenezer. You are defining life through what you see, not through what you know. Let me tell you this day, there is a stone of victory that you must look at. And remember that the Lord is gracious and merciful. He is slow to anger and abounding in his steadfast love for his children. His mercy and his love for you is not based on your ability to ascend to him. It is based in his faithfulness to you. And so as a child of God, let me pronounce to you that God is victorious for you. And to all of us today, it's all right to smile. Because God is victorious. It's all right to smile. It's all right to have joy in your heart because God has indeed pronounced you to be his child as you are interceded for by Jesus Christ. And as you turn to his sacrifice and as you experience his deliverance and give him praise for his faithful work. And so we can go through life with the joy that comes from being known by the almighty God. So let us this day celebrate that. Let us look to our Ebenezer, to our stone, and remember that the Lord has been, will be, and forever will be our helper, for he is faithful to his children. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for a time gathered around your word. And I pray, Lord, that your word would produce fruit within us. And so, Lord, we recognize your faithfulness in drawing us to your mercy. We recognize your mercy as you draw us through and deliver us through your mercy. Our hearts, our minds are filled with praise for you, our Savior. Our hearts and our minds are filled with praise for you, the one who has been the great redeemer, the one who has looked upon sinful man and shed your blood for us. 
We praise your name, Lord, for your work. Lord, may our hearts and minds be stayed upon you. May we look to you and remember your faithful work and your victory, your ultimate victory upon us. And we proclaim that death no longer has reign over us. Sin no longer defines us. Rather, we are defined by the faithful work and the sustaining hand of Almighty God. We praise your name, O Father.